So I've been taking some yoga classes and they always ask us to set an intention that you want to carry through before we start. And I was just sort of wondering what your intention was for our time together today. I don't really believe in um, volition. I'm kind <laughs> of... I'm, a, I'm an epiphenomenalist. I think the mind and intentionality are sort of post hoc clouds that follow the animal part of the human around and try and reason that they are in control, but they're not. Well, anyway, what's your intention? I don't know if you saw, but I have recently been scolded by a listener on Twitter for my bad punning. Oh, really? Yes, for the Liam Nissan joke. That is piss poor, I didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they were right to chide you. So, my intention for this episode is to leave that cheap cruise ship comedy behind. I need to take it to 1961 in the Catskills and leave it there where it belongs. That's my intention. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. This spice girl over here is Daniel. And, um, NSYNC. One of the end sinks. Kitchen. I don't know. What are they all, there's all different sinks, aren't there? Is Abby? You didn't want to go with this backstreet boy? Well, then I couldn't have done the funny <laughs> kitchen sink. You got me there, Daniel. <laughs> That's a good pun. <laughs> this is deteriorating swifter yep. than I thought was possible. <laughs> so would you like to read some letters? I sure would. Here's a letter from Beth. I'm a recent English postgrad. Well, I don't know if you're talking about an MA or a PhD, but if you want to do a PhD, I'm looking for a student. Well, you probably won't when you hear the rest of this. Beth, why? Well, not that you won't, but more just she won't want you. Oh. You can't can't offer what she needs. (laughs) She's lot. Yeah, anyway, I'm I'm a recent postgrad and I'm loving SMFMS. Still struggling with that. As someone who specialised in medieval culture... Oh. I wanted to know if there's any chance of a Middle Ages ep co-starring the lovely Justine. I know it's a sore subject for Daniel. What is this? Sure. Is it because you are my nearest friend but not my dearest? That's Justine? Is that is that maybe the issue? Oh, don't cry. Anyway, it's a sore subject for me, apparently. <laughs> I, I welcome Justine. I thought she, she made a very good effort. <laughs> but the world desperately needs this crossover. Take care and keep being amazing. That's nice. Beth, thank you. Thank you, Beth. We do have plans for Justine to come back on in a season five. If we do a season five, we've already picked the text with her. We don't have plans for her to come on in season four. So look for Justine after December 2023. Look on the hillside. (laughs) Riding in like Gandalf, the first light. Okay, now we have a letter from Lindsay. Hi, Abby and Daniel. I have recently discovered your podcast and absolutely love it. I've just listened to the Pamela episode and laughed a lot, mostly, quite embarrassingly, in public. Please do an episode on Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which, although I love, I would very much like to hear being pulled apart by you guys. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, Lindsay, we have gotten a lot of requests for Rebecca. 
I can say with quite a bit of confidence that if we do a season five, Rebecca might have to feature Jamaica in. We're doing Jamaica in. We are incorrect. Just not everything can be from Cornwall, Daniel. Not even you. Well, Daphne de Maurier is from Cornwall, isn't she? So I win either way. Right, and this is just a reminder that at Aston University, we have a new MA program in English Lit. We also have our undergrad program in English Lit if you want Daniel and I to teach you. I'm also looking for PhD students, so if any of you specialize in genre fiction or Victorian Lit or anything like that, send me an email and we can work something out. Our other news is we have our working Patreon now. We have five oh. lovely people signed up. What are you tisking? I just thought it was something I didn't know about. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, we're just we're trying to keep the lights on over here, and it was kind of either this or start an OnlyFans, and I don't really know how we'd make our shtick work over there. Sexy measuring worth. Measuring girth. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! It's gone a bit blue. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Finally, guys, I'm sorry, our building has some repair work going on in the background. I don't know what it is. So if you hear a buzzsaw going in this episode, I will do my best to minimize it in editing, but you know, such is life. So Daniel, what is our text today? We're back in the 18th century, a time of innovation. An agricultural revolution is taking place. The construction of canals you know, all over the shop. New ideas in administration, legal reforms, and urbanization, such as that the world has never before seen. But remember that all of these positive changes, positive developments, are underwritten by a slave economy. It's the 18th century BC. Yeah, I tricked you. <laughs> did you though? Yeah, I think you did. The third dynasty of Ur has fallen, and Babylon is on the rise, with King Hammurabi conquering neighbouring kingdoms, and just, you know, throwing up ziggurats left, right and centre. This is also the time in which the oldest known version of today's text was compiled. Based on the old legends of Sumeria, it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right, so it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this text for you. The content, I don't know that this one's too terrible. There's death, destruction of property. There's some maybe kind of anti-sex worker stuff. Mm. There's some coercive sex. There's some deforestation. Melancholy, I guess. One of the characters gets pretty depressed for a while. Yeah. Meditations on death, I guess. Yeah. Some animals get killed. Most of them are it coming. <laughs> right. Do some background okay. then, why don't you? The Epic of Gilgamesh is, is pretty much the oldest piece of literature that survives down to this day. There are a couple of other epics of Uruk, the city that Gilgamesh is from, aren't there? But this is the most famous one. Is, would you say that this is the earliest text we're probably ever going to be able to cover on this show? I think so, yeah. yeah. Unless there's a big call to do the other epics of Uruk or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and unlike those other big ancient epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, it was kind of pretty much completely forgotten for many years after the fall of the Mesopotamian cultures until in the 19th century, in the 1850s, when the clay tablets on which these kind of fragments, fragments of these poems were discovered by a team of British and local archaeologists. So, it, you know, it doesn't have that kind of continuing tradition like the Odyssey does. That said, there are parallels between the other epics we've covered in Gilgamesh, like Beowulf and the Odyssey. The origins of this poem are mysterious. It's believed that the poem originates in works that were written in ancient Sumer. So Sumer was the pretty much the first civilization, wasn't it? Ooh, la da uh, It existed between the 6th and 2nd millennia BCE in southern Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, that means, doesn't it? Iraq. 
I was thinking Iraq, Uruk, and they are related, I think, to some idea that Uruk, the city that Gilgamesh is from, and the name of the country Iraq are related. Mm. Which Sumer was made up of various city-states. Uruk is one, where our hero comes from, but there are these others. Nippur and Shurapak, they are mentioned in the poem. There's Ur. I love Ur. That's cool, isn't it? The it's golden what... liar of Ur. Yeah. That's, that's where, where that comes from. That's where Abraham came from, isn't it? Father Abraham. What's that song? Many songs so, of Father Abraham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, him. The one that Bobby Draper makes his parents sing. Oh, yeah, yes. Exactly, yeah. So if you... <laughs> next time you're watching Mad Men, just think, well... The... <laughs> What Sumeria has given us. Um, yeah, we think that the poems were compiled, these Sumerian poems were compiled into an epic a bit later on, and that this epic sort of was passed between different languages, uh, between the different succeeding Mesopotamian civilizations, Assyria, Babylonia. The main versions we have today are one from the 18th century BCE, hence my joke, and the most intact, though, is from the 13th to 10th centuries BCE, and uh, this was found in the library of Ashurbanipal in the city of Nineveh, which people may remember has just been completely destroyed now by Islamic State. So we'll yeah. hopefully do the same they've done to Nineveh, you know, in words to the Epic of Gilgamesh. We'll, we'll <laughs> level it. Don't compare us with ISIS. <laughs> yeah, getting your name in the history books, isn't it? It's better than nothing. Vanilla ISIS over here is what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, very good. That's not my joke. That's not my joke. Oh, okay. The big thing about the Epic of Gilgamesh is that when it was rediscovered, it was found that it contained many sort of parallels with the Bible especially, as we'll see, the Noah's Ark flood story. There's a similar one in Gilgamesh. And in the mid-19th century, scientists like Charles Darwin were completely blowing up religious orthodoxy. So this discovery felt like, no, the Bible's real, you know, there were other witnesses to biblical events. So for a while it was kind of... Like people, seen as proof that the flood, did the flood really happen? Yeah, people or? were very excited about it, like the religious literalists were very excited about it. That said, you, there's a counter reading that it just shows that the Bible was derived from older stories or that... Many cultures have similar metaphorical exactly, stories. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's the other thing that we'll see that there are these little bits that are a bit like Homer, there are bits that are a bit like Beowulf. So it's the epic tradition has these preoccupations, whatever the culture. I well, think. and you and I teach post-apocalyptic fiction and the first week we do, it's on flood narratives mm. in that first week and how many different cultures have some sort of flood narrative and many of them are very, you know, yeah, metaphorical, mm. which is like, oh, there was a civilization and it was all washed away and new and the world could rebuild from, you know, mm. and, and so it's it's unsurprising that, like, given the metaphorical properties of, like, water and fire and things like that, that you'd have similar... And also just that floods are hardly a rare... Well, or, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. If it was like everyone got drowned in Pines TM beans, oh, then you would yeah. think that there was a connection, but... Just say that... The various languages in which the poem was originally written, they wrote in this script that archaeologists call cuneiform. So that's like you have these clay tablets that the Mesopotamian scribes would like imprint wedges into. So they're a little bit like a bird's walked over them, don't they? That's cool. So cuneiform just means wedge-shaped. But there's a kind of interesting thing here that but although the poems were long forgotten, it's because they were written on clay rather than like papyrus or other kind of disposable, more like paper-like materials, that they could have survived at all. So, you know, like when we did the Odyssey, I was saying that the, the oldest intact version of the Odyssey we have is from Middle Ages that was just copied by monks. But... You know, these go thousands of years before that because of the material that mm. we're written on. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? We've got like a, our co copies of Gilgamesh are like more bona fide, you might say. Those clay tablets of all the writing substances, they look the tastiest, don't they? I always think they look a bit like um, like a digestive biscuit or something. Like if I was going to eat any famous work of literature, it would probably be Gilgamesh. <laughs> don't you mean? There's that sort of biscuity look about it. I'm mainly thinking of like those tax records. They look particularly nice for some reason. 
Do you have pica? Is that this yeah, time it's like you're that, telling me it? that you yeah, have yeah, pica? Yeah, yeah, This is it. I've just, I'm trying to raise awareness for pica. Pica, pica. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to eat Gilgamesh purely so you could absorb his properties cannibalistically. Oh, yeah. Kind of super tough asshole. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Also, another final point. There's a lot of interesting gods, aren't there? There are certain parallels with other mm-hmm. pantheons, aren't there? Like the Greeks and the Vikings or whatever. But my favourite Mesopotamian god, who, as far as I can tell, has no equal, is Embilulu, the god of canals and canal inspections. I feel a real affinity with Sumeria and Babylon because Birmingham is a big canal city and it's a bit drab. And we used to have a cigarette library. I feel like Embilulu should be our patron god. So come on, everybody who listens, who lives in Birmingham, I want you to pray to Embilulu tonight. <laughs> All right, and we'll just make this happen, okay? The story opens by giving mad props to Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, the OG, the goat, who even lived long enough to give us stories from before the Great Flood. He was also wise, incredibly strong, brave, and very, very sexy. I'm getting a little hot and bothered over here already, but you know me, Daniel. I love a man in cuneiform. <laughs> That's one for the um, Assyriologist conference circuit, that. <laughs> I was thinking of that, an Egyptology joke, that like a, when you bring on the keynote, you'd be like, oh, this guy is a born Egyptologist. His first word was mummy. But, <laughs> I love a man in cuneiform is way better, and that's why Assyriology is better than Egyptology. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be on my shit so early this episode. I, uh, I don't understand why you guys listen. If I were you, listener, I simply would not accept this as entertainment. Anyway, point is, when Gilgamesh was born, it was kind of a sleeping beauty situation where the gods endowed him with all of these great features, and they made him two-thirds a god and only one-third a man. Take that, Jesus. Here we go, queer reading. Does that imply that he's descended from a thruple? Queer reading will take it. Gilgamesh is the king of the city of Uruk, and he built such great walls there, and he built a bitchin' temple, and the narrator invites us to all go touristing and walk on the walls and admire how coppery they are. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's quite a similar beginning to the other epics, but we don't have that kind of invocation of the muse that you get in the kind of standard Greco-Roman mm. model. A bit like Beowulf, isn't it? Although it doesn't have the what it does have the kind of like yeah you're in history now accept it this was a big guy you need to know about him you know that kind of it will have that same pattern of beginning yeah 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 and, and we're gonna note quite a few comparisons i think you, you found more comparisons between this and beowulf than i think you even did between this and the odyssey which yeah, is interesting and the bible we could have a little ding for every um, parallel little, yeah homeric beowulfian parallelism we can do that so yeah sounds like gilgamesh is pretty great right wrong <laughs> We begin the story proper with the people of Uruk lamenting their king, who's a bit of a tyrant. So he's constantly rallying young men for war or onerous labor. Quote, no son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all. Dang. And as for the women, his lust leaves no virgin to her lover. So he's doing the old droit de seigneur, the old first night thing. Oh God, he's got a Henry VIII style devil dick. Ain't no woman safe. Yeah. (laughs) What's that? Just like he's got that devil in him. Yeah, he has. Two-thirds God, one-third devil, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, the bottom third. Um, Worst of all, Gilgamesh just keeps challenging local men to duels, and they just keep losing and dying. Uh, So no man can best him in battle, and this makes him 
you know, actually quite bored. So the gods, they're all listening to the people's pleas, and they tell Aruru, the god of creation, to make Gilgamesh an equal. Oh, he's got a little buddy that he can spar with, and maybe boink, so he can leave the peasants the goddamn hell alone. I'm just going to throw in a little preemptive queer reading here for... Oh, no reason. It's also a good bit of checks and balances, isn't it? Tyrant, just add another tyrant. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that worked out really well for Oedipus and Creon. Yes. Mark Antony and Augustus and Lepidus. All right, well, <laughs> sorry. I just I thought that's what was going on here, but maybe, I'm, maybe it's not a good idea. So, quote, this is about the, what the gods are saying about this new man they're going to make. Quote, let him be as like him as his own reflection, his second self, stormy heart for stormy heart. Let them contend together and leave Uruk in quiet. Quite, quite a nice bit, actually. It's quite romantic. Do you think when they meet, they do like one of those little mirroring warm-up exercises like you and I do every day before we record? Like in um, Duck Soup. So they get a bit of divine clay and they say some magic words and divine Enkidu is born. Specifically, they pinch off a piece of divine clay and flick it into the woods, which I do. That was a detail I really liked. Yeah, nice touch, yeah. I like that Gilgamesh's heroism is like a kind of weakness because he's like so superior mm. he can't empathise with anyone. And, you know, he's like a kind of the bad side of the Ubermensch, if there had to be one. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like Ambrosio in The Monk, isn't it? Where they were like... Ambro so perfect. Yeah, like, so perfect that everybody's in more trouble and also he's kind of more vulnerable as a result. And Gilgamesh is kind of similar to that. Yeah, and I was thinking, in addition to making him less empathetic to everyone, I was also wondering if it made us view him less empathetically. Yeah, yeah. You hold him to a higher standard, if anything. Yeah. You hold him to a higher standard, but also just that sheer level of perfection. That's a quarter of the sky you and I are never going to know. Mm. So it's just how, how do we... Present the guy. Yeah. Present him. How do you relate to him? So mm. I was wondering if that was, you know, a detriment this early I on. I feel like you could have a beer with him. You want a leader like that. You don't want a Gilgamesh. Anyway, back to Enkidu, who's just been created. And he's kind of this wild man, you know, he, he was flicked out into the woods by the gods. He's some sort of, like, I don't know, critter. <laughs> so he's basically this feral wood dweller who's covered in hair. And I was just thinking, where's John Lithgow when you need him? Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. No, I was like, John, John Lithgow's not covered in hair, he's bald. <laughs> but no. You haven't seen Under the Clothes. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, speaking of... This is a sexy Harry and the Hendersons because Enkidu, he's not just covered all Sexier. over... Sexier. Sorry, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've seen your Reddit post, Daniel, <laughs> I know. So, Enkidu, he's not only hairy all over his body, he also has long hair on his head, quote, like a woman's. Nice. Hmm. So Enkidu Tarzans it up with local gazelles and shit. The problem starts when Enkidu starts messing around with hunters' traps and scaring them. So the hunters go back to Gilgamesh and report a yeti. Gilgamesh's solution is to send a hunter back with a sex worker to honey trap what they suspect is a probable Bigfoot. <laughs> the idea is that she will lure him in with her wiles, they'll have sex, and then he'll, like, smell of civilization so the other animals will reject him like a baby bird fallen out of the nest. And, Daniel, you said in your script that this is, like, when Mowgli falls for that little girl carrying the pot, but this has significantly more reverse cowgirl. Y yes, that's true. That, I feel like that is a motif, though, isn't it? That, like, a kind of woman's wiles somehow being civilizing... She has a name in some versions, I think, but not in ours, but the, the woman is called, like, Sham Hat or something. It's like a fake hat. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're a Syrian <laughs> Very good. Or you Akkadian or whatever. <laughs> but um, I think she's like a temple sex worker or whatever. Those, you know, those yeah, ones. Like, so the sort of like, sort of legitimate, sort of holy. Yeah. Like a, a priest that you want to have sex with. Have you not watched Fleabag? Oh yeah, right, okay. Or the Thornbirds? And you can, as well. Or Sex in the City? You and I went to the Vatican together. Did you not see all those sexy priest catalogs? Not catalogs, you can't buy them. Calendars. I'll have this one. But it's not their job to have sex with you, I suppose is the point, whereas it is hers. You and I had very different experiences (laughs) in the Vatican. So, the hunter and the sex worker wait around for Enkidu to show up. And when he does, the hunter literally says to her, get your tits out for the lads. Quote, make your breasts bare. And she is game. She was, quote, not ashamed to take him. She made herself naked and welcomed his eagerness. She She incited the savage to love and taught him the woman's art. Nice. They have a seven-day sex marathon, and she boinks the backwoods straight out of his system. So instead of now hanging with his cool deer and chipmunk pals, he sits at the sex worker's feet and has her teach him wisdom and civilization. I just thought that was a really cool image of, you know, a man sitting at a sex worker's feet no, that ga- is cool. gaining yeah. wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I guess he's not quite civilized enough to stop listening to women. He's like, Ken, the patriarchy hasn't reached that's, him. Yeah, that, I suppose that, that's kind of implicit yeah. I think, in this, isn't it? Because then he kind of graduates to Gilgamesh. Well, speaking of, after a while, Chat gets around to Gilgamesh, who the sex worker describes as the strongest, the bravest, the most fuckable. Enkidu is intrigued, and he says that one day he'd like to meet this great man and see if he can best him in battle. Is that kind of a double entendre? Because I'm convinced that he thinks of sex as a battle and something he can win. So is this a a queer reading? Well... You know they'd high-five after, like it was the big game. For him, sex has been a kind of um, conquest, hasn't it? So I suppose it would make sense that he would think that kind of going forward. So yeah, you're probably right. So Gilgamesh, meanwhile, has dreams that foretell Enkidu's arrival. There are a lot of prophetic dreams in this book, so we're going to put in a dream klaxon. Yes, please. Dream klaxon. like it. So in one of the dreams, a huge meteor lands in Uruk, and it can't be lifted. And it's also adored by the people, which is quite funny. Let me just say that this meteor dream is not all that subtle, is it? (laughs) You don't need to be a psychoanalyst to work that out. The next dream involves a special axe. Speaking of psychoanalysis, oh, I'm dreaming about a big special weapon. (laughs) And Gilgamesh says that he loved the weapon like a woman. So, Hmm. again, not... Not too much interpretation <laughs> required here. So this, these two dreams foretell that he and Enkidu's, you know, just good friendship will um, be great, you know. <laughs> Queer reading, hooray! Meanwhile, back in the wilderness with Enkidu and um, Chamhat, the quote-unquote harlot, Enkidu's still being taught the ways of society. So the woman, she gives him a loincloth and takes him to live amongst the shepherds. The Georgia the Jungle look is very hot. Yeah. I might just be thinking of Brendan Fraser in Georgia say, the Jungle. Yeah. I saw that at a very formative 10th birthday. <laughs> um, so when he, when now he's like kind of living in this sort of semi-civilized environment with the shepherds, she teaches him to eat bread and drink wine. And then after that, he starts to sort of dress nicely and he sorts his hair out. There's a bit where they said that he dresses like a bridegroom. So he kind of has a top hat on or something, I suppose. (laughs) Um, How does he take care of his hair? Oiling his hair, his body, his body hair, (laughs) his hair body. I don't, you know, yeah, there's a lot of oil 
There's a Homeric parallel, I didn't even notice that, but clearly a lot of ancient peoples like to oil themselves. Next, he starts hunting animals. He hunts the lions that he used to play around with at the watering hole on the behalf of the shepherds. <gasps> All this gayness and lions in this book? Why did we not do this during Pride Month? <laughs> Very nice. He eventually hears about Gilgamesh's bad side, tyrannous stuff, and he's like affronted and promises to go to Uruk and challenge Gilgamesh and quote-unquote change the old order. I have to call bullshit on this. Where does Enkidu get off being judgmental? Friend, three weeks ago you didn't know what fire was and your best friend was a possum. It's a bit rich for you to go, oh that Gilgamesh. He's a noble savage is the point. A noble savage oh. comes out of the wilderness and sees civilizations and he didn't like what he saw, but he couldn't turn back either. So I he had to sort it out. So Enkidu heads to Uruk. And when he gets there, there's a bit of a hoo-ha, I thought. It's Gilgamesh. He's up to his usual tricks. There's a wedding on, and wedding night, it's time for Gilgamesh to intercede. He's invoking the rite of Prima Nocta. Yep, very good in that. Completely fake Braveheart way. Yeah. So Enkidu's like, not on my watch. And he goes and waits by the newlyweds' front door to, like, kind of, you know, none shall pass. He's like that, isn't he? <laughs> Gilgamesh turns up. He's just kind of like, ooh, ooh just going to go off and have sex with this uh, bride. But Enkidu, no. He's a cock blocker. Cock utterly blocked. Yes. The most a cock has ever been blocked, I would venture to say. Yeah. He and Enkidu, they have at it. They're grappling, they're snorting like bulls and smashing into doorposts, etc. There are so many things that get smashed in this book. We are in the fertile crescent of property damage. <laughs> um, Gilgamesh wins the fight. People don't remember that. What people assume that Enkidu does. But no, Gilgamesh wins the fight. But it's the first time he's been challenged properly. Exactly. Gilgamesh is pinning Enkidu. They're face to face. They're panting. <laughs> um, there's all kind of sweat dripping off them. And then they just start chuckling and laughing and, you know, kissing each other's cheeks <laughs> and rubbing each other's tummies and <laughs> things like that. And they resolve to be good pals forever. I thought time for a bit of measuring worth. <gasps> We haven't had one in so long! This one is brought to us by another product of 18th century Scotland. Not economics, but stadial models of history. <laughs> this measuring worth is the personal is stadial edition. So, if you want to attain a particular level of civilization, you personally have to do the following. This is what Gilgamesh teaches us. If you want to be a hunter-gatherer, you have to have sex with a lady. If you want to enter pasturage, that stage, you have to wear clothes. Just a loincloth, possibly. If you want to develop agriculture, you must drink wine. Isn't that a little chicken and egg? Don't, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Ask the good people who brought us Gilgamesh. If you want to go to city dwelling stage, you've got to stop someone else from having sex with a lady. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I feel like there's a bit of satire there, probably. Could we, you know. I was just wondering what about the next stages of human history? Commerce, what do you have to do for that? destroying property so it stimulates the economy so you have to rebuild things it's like your iphone breaking every four years as built-in obsolescence yeah communism discover friendship rub somebody's tummy so enkidu's he's at the communist he's stage. skipped commerce yeah. i suppose he did smash up the stuff you're right yeah is that what you're alluding to sorry? yes yes sorry okay um <laughs> yeah enkidu has reached communism so after this wedding situation, Enkidu becomes Gilgamesh's ride-or-die bitch and his most trusted advisor. They spend every day high-fiving for like three hours straight, and they go and get a bunch of wings, and maybe they have sex in between. Who's to say? Not me! 
Enkidu tells the king, yes, Gilgamesh, you were born for greatness, but your subjects aren't. Go easy on them. And Gilgamesh is like, yeah, you're right. And he actually does. He chills out and all goes well for a while. But eventually, Gilgamesh just isn't satisfied with being the biggest baller to ever live. I don't want to be born on third and think I hit a triple. I need to earn my greatness to ensure that my name lives on. It's a little baseball joke. Yeah, I, I can get that. It was a bit too inside baseball for me. Oh, Although, obviously it wasn't at all. It was a very superficial <laughs> baseball joke, I imagine. So Gilgamesh decides to journey to a mystical place called the Land of Cedars, where the names of all the famous men are written. And there he'll erect a monument to the gods, and maybe he'll even bring back some of that bomb-ass cedar wood. Maybe he'll, I don't know, make a chest to store his cashmere in. I don't know why he wants it. Now, here's the thing about the mystical Land of the Cedars. The gods have put Humbaba, a ferocious giant, in charge of that land. So Gilgamesh naturally decides to kill Humbaba in his attempt to honor the gods. But the thing is, Humbaba is no joke. Quote, he has sevenfold terrors. When he roars, it is like the torrent of the storm. His breath is like fire, and his jaws are death itself. Mm -hmm. One of the gods, Shamash... God of the sun... Shamash. Yeah. Shamash. Shamash hears of Gilgamesh's plans and he's like, sounds cool. I'll bless you on this trip. Gilgamesh and Enkidu, they walk super fast and super far. They cross seven mountains and then reach the gates of the Cedar Forest. There's a a big gate to the forest because it's sort of a, a sacred, mysterious place. And here we go. Here are the gates. Quote, 72 cubits was its height. 24 cubits its breadth. Oh, this is a funny bit. I was going to look up how to pronounce these words because I'm not even. I'm so like unhandsy that I don't even know. The pivot and the ferrule and the jams were perfect. Craftsmen had made it in Nippur, the holy city of Enlil. So we get a bit of carpentry porn, don't we? I like that. Oh, should we call Jesus and Harrison Ford? I don't want them to miss this. So we've got another measuring. People thought the measuring was out of the way. No, we've got a new one. Measuring length. Not measuring girth. No, no. (laughs) Less of that, please. So, cubit. What is a cubit? I'm going to tell you. A cubit is roughly the distance between one's elbow and middle finger. So it's obviously not a very standard measure. It kind of, over the course of ancient history, achieved these kind of different forms of standardization in different cultures. The city of Nippur, so where this bloody gate was found, so this is some good research on my part, in 1916, a, a standard cubit was found uh, in Nippur. Is oh, it? that is actually really cool. I did not read any of this. No, st- I, I thought was like, not. No. I was like, you're just on your shit. Yeah, no, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, a bronze or is it brass or something cubit. And its length is 518.6 millimeters. So just over half a meter. It seems to make sense to calculate the Nippur built gate according to its own standard of measure. So what is that? The gate of the Cedar Forest is roughly 37.34 metres high or 12.45 metres wide. So that's quite a big gate. Let's compare it to some other famous historical gates. I've I've taken this quite far. (laughs) So, the the, the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, big blue thing, that was built in the 6th century BCE. It was 15 metres high. The Arch of Titus in Rome, it's a big triumphal arc, built in the 1st century uh, Common Era, 15.4 metres tall, 13.5 metres wide. Quite big, pretty big. The Torii at the Itsukushima Shrine, originally built in the 12th century, but replaced in the 19th. That's 16.8 meters tall. Uh, and the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, 
built in the 1806. It's 55 meters tall, 45 meters wide. So you had to wait a good while for a gate to surpass this fictional gate. Is this a bad time to tell you that I don't know how to measure things in meters because I only measure them in feet, so you have to translate this for me I now. thought that, and I thought, F I'm a Napoleonic person at heart. And finally, and this is something listeners at home can get involved in, I measured my own elbow to fingertip, and I got 480 millimeters. So am I disproportionate or something? Why would I have a smaller personal cubit than these ancient ones. I thought people now were bigger than... No, I think you are disproportioned, and I hate that this is how you finally find out. Find out. Well, I, I want other people, this is what I'm going to say. Listeners, can you send in your cubits? <laughs> I want, do it on, send us on Twitter or whatever, your cubits, or send, write an email to me. I want to get a sense of what other people's cubits are, because my... I don't think I have ridiculously short forearms to... You do. I, I've thought that. For, we've said it through the department for years. <laughs> like a dinosaur. Like a tyrannosaurus. So what you do, straighten your arm, straighten your hand, and just measure from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow and send it in. Please. Right, so back to the plot. Yep. Yeah? You, you good? You done? I think so, yeah. Okay. A bit tired now, actually. <laughs> So, they're there, they're in the mystical land of the cedars, and as they approach, the fearsome giant Humbaba just kinda legs it back into the woods. They follow his tracks, but my dude is gone, and they know that like finding him is gonna be a whole thing. So they camp for the night, and Gilgamesh has a dream. Naturally, he has to wake Enkidu up immediately to tell him about it, despite it being like... Hey, babe. <laughs> Wake up. So the dream was about Gilgamesh fighting a mountain and winning, and you don't have to be a genius to figure out that he's, you know, he's a little bit worked up about fighting this giant. The next night, Enkidu has a bad dream. This time it's about a storm, and he wakes up Gilgamesh to tell him about it, so at least that's some fair turnaround. Gilgamesh is like, babe, I'm sorry you had a nightmare. Let's go cut down a tree about it. And I have no idea how we got to this endgame in the logic, but they decide to go cut down one of the magical cedar trees. And when they do, Humbaba hears it from however many miles off in the forest, and he gets completely pissed off. It's very fee-fi-fo-fum. Finally, Gilgamesh and Humbaba meet and they square up, and Humbaba gives him the stink eye. Quote, he fastened his eye upon him, the eye of death. Gilgamesh instantly bursts into tears. <laughs> and he calls on the god Shamash. Damn it, I hate saying that name. It's like I'm drunk at Thanksgiving. You want Shamash? <laughs> Shamash takes pity on Gilgamesh and sends eight winds to torment Humbaba, who's understandably confused. He's like, wait, 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 Shamash, didn't you guys put me here to guard the forest, and I'm guarding the forest from these people cutting down your trees, and then all of a sudden, here comes wind with the folding chair. We've got to let you go. <laughs> Sorry, Humbaba. So the wind just kind of whoops Humbaba's ass while Gilgamesh and Enkidu sit back and, like, file their nails. So Gilgamesh isn't going to beat the giant then in battle. The god Shamash is. There's literally zero glory for Gilgamesh in this. So like there's something impressive about nepotism. Like if someone gets a really good job through nepotism, you're like, I mean, they did know the guy. <laughs> it's the same here. Gilgamesh did know the guy. I guess, but his whole point was to win glory for himself and he comes there and does nothing. Well, Humbaba, after being thoroughly wind trounced, begs for mercy, saying, 
I'll cut down all the magnificent cedar trees, and I'll build a palace in honor of Gilgamesh, if Gilgamesh spares me. Or, you know, build the palace to the god Shamash, who's actually doing the heavy lifting here. Gilgamesh is tempted, but Enkidu's like, nah, I don't trust this guy. <laughs> so they tag team, slicing his head off. Meanwhile, the mountains and the hills are watching this, and they're confused because they're like, wait, our guardian is dead. And Gilgamesh and Enkidu are like, that's right, bitch. And they go on a massive deforestation spree, cutting down every tree as far as the Euphrates, just cuz. Now, why did he do that? I guess we'll never know. We get this Gilgamesh makeover montage. He washes his hair, he puts on nice clothes, gets accessorized. Um, lovely ringletty beards they always have, don't they, in the, in the kind of bass reliefs. I love those. I, I could look at those fucking beards all day long. And he catches the eye of goddess of love and fertility, and I think also war, Ishtar. She looks at him and realizes he's a hottie. It's sort of like when a girl in a 90s movie takes her glasses off and was secretly hot all along. That's Gilgamesh, That's it? Gilgamesh. Ishtar, she's very impressed, and asks Gilgamesh to marry her! Good lord. She promises him a chariot, quote, of lapis lazuli and gold, with wheels of gold and horns of copper. What's a horn on a like, <laughs> <laughs> Horns of copper. Uh, it's pulled by storm demons. Hot. Uh, yeah, that is cool. She's going to make Gilgamesh powerful and rich. His goats will only bear twins and triplets. Poor goats. <laughs> His, don- <laughs> his donkeys will be the fastest in the world. Fucking why? And she says, Come to me, Gilgamesh, and be my bridegroom. Grant me seed of your body. Buy a guy a drink first, my god! Yeah. Ugh, seed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Gilgamesh is like, no thank you, love. Not only would there be a par- bit of power imbalance between god and demigod, but, quote, your lovers have found you like a brazier which smoulders in the cold, a backdoor which keeps out near the squall of wind or storm, a castle which crushes the garrison, pitch that blackens the bearer, a leaky skin that wets the carrier, a stone which falls from the parapet, a sandal that trips the wearer, an engine of assault set up in the enemy's land. Which of your lovers did you ever love forever? That's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's like a sort of Shakespearean breakup sonnet, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Very good. And then he just sort of recites all the legends of Ishtar's previous lovers. So we get this kind of... um... It it kind of turns into a Taylor Swift album recounting all of her old flames. Yeah, so there's Tamas, god of fertility. She got pissed off with him one day and broke his wing and dumped him in a grove somewhere. He got off easy. That's the easiest one. She had a lion boyfriend she got sick of him one day and dug him seven graves but isn't there's a bit where it's about like how the lion became a kind of enemy to other animals or something or to human hunters isn't it i think it's like it's almost like a creation of how lions and then humans became enemies yeah she loved the stallion she got sick of the stallion and you know that's how stallions ended up um under human control as well there's a bit about him having a like tack on and he's yet forced to run forever yeah even we didn't want to you can't, you can't make him drink. <laughs> but um, She loved his shepherd, but got sick of him and turned him into a wolf, and now all of his friends and dogs chase him away. Kind of a bit Acteon. Yeah. I was thinking that. Give us a ding for that. Uh, she loved Ishulanu, the gardener, but he didn't love her. And, and he says something about her vagina being rotten, so, <laughs> so she turned him into a blind mole. So Ishtar does not take the rejection well and pleads to her father, Anu, to send the Bull of Heaven to kill Gilgamesh. Ishtar's like, if you don't, here's the thing, if you don't send the Bull of Heaven down to punish 
Gilgamesh and humankind. What I'll do is I'll open the gates of the underworld and kind of get all the zombies to come out and attack the world. So that's quite an interesting bit. Anu, the, her dad, is like, okay. Uh, all right, your little Veruca Salt ass. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah, oh, Ishtar, Ishtar. <laughs> I'll do whatever you want, precious. So he releases the bull, uh, even though it kind of is going to cause all of these disasters. Just by snorting, it snorts, kills loads of people and causes a famine. It's a bad bull. So the bull of heaven, it arrives on earth, then charges Enkidu. Enkidu grabs it by the horns and swings onto its back. Enkidu, he's there doing all the hard work. Gilgamesh <laughs> just kind of sneaks up behind and stabs the bull and the bull dies. This is quite an anticlimactic bit, isn't it? I have to say. I like the litany of boyfriends. The actual fight with the bulls, not that exciting. Very lackluster. But epics are often like that, aren't they? They kind of focus on something that we wouldn't, and the fight scene is very brief. Now, Ishtar is watching all of this, and she gets supremely pissed off. So she jumps over those big walls of Gilgamesh's city, and she curses Gilgamesh for refusing to date her. Enkidu, Gilgamesh's actual boyfriend, quote, tore out the bull's right thigh and tossed it in her face, saying, if I could lay my hands on you, it is this I should do to you and lash the entrails to your side. What? That is some serious gay shade. <laughs> oh my god, that is, that is pure Real Housewives throwing a drink in somebody's face. This is when Ishtar gets her revenge. She gathers up all the sex workers in town and they cry over the bull's thigh. That'll show them. Gilgamesh goes, oh yeah, well, I'll get my revenge by calling together all the smiths and armorers in town, and we're going to set the bull's horns with jewels and mount them on my palace wall. Nice. So there's, there is a rap battle happening right now, and I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> a non-sequitous rap battle. Seriously, it's, you know, what is ancient Uruk for something something mom's spaghetti? I do yeah. know. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is like that, yeah. <laughs> so that night, Enkidu has a dream that all the gods got together for a bit of an important sit-down. Homeric moment. Yes, it is. And they're all like, hmm, that Gilgamesh and Enkidu, they're stirring up a lot of trouble. I mean, I know we, like, created Enkidu specifically for this purpose, but eh, we don't like We it. work in mysterious ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they killed Humbaba, even though we kind of intervened. They killed the Bull of Heaven. They chopped down the Sacred Cedars. One of these two guys has got to go. The god Shamash tries to protect them, saying, Yeah, guys, I, I did kind of tell them to do a lot of that crap, and I <laughs> helped them. But it's no good. Enkidu is the one that the gods say must die. No! Even though he kind of wasn't the ringleader in this. Gilgamesh is the head of the snake. The bigger boy made me do it. <laughs> That's exactly why you must die. <laughs> Enkidu, from this, he gets really sick. And Gilgamesh cries over him, and on the whole, he's a fairly useless nurse. Enkidu just starts taking all of his clothes off, and once he's buck-ass naked, he just kind of flops face down on the ground. And after 12 more days of incredible pain, Enkidu recites this big poem on his deathbed like he's Mimi and Rent or Eponine and Les Mis, and then he dies. Quote, So Gilgamesh laid a veil as one veils the bride over his friend. Queer reading. This is so goddamn romantic, Daniel. This is a Nicholas Sparks novel. I don't know what that is, but it is. I do find Enkidu and Gilgamesh quite moving, despite also being thugs. 
Then, like every rock star ever, Gilgamesh gets himself buck-ass naked and tears the room apart. Then, you guys, Gilgamesh plays around with Enkidu's corpse for a little while. He weeps over it for seven days, and only once the worms start eating Enkidu does Gilgamesh go, okay, this is starting to get weird. <laughs> so he has all the craftsmen in town build a big statue to Enkidu, and Gilgamesh leaves an offering of a bowl of butter, and he goes away crying. <laughs> I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> the poem's kind of a, it's a game of two halves. Yeah, one with Enkidu and one without. Yeah, and now we're in the kind of new bit. So Gilgamesh, he goes into the wilderness to do a bit of soul searching. Oh my god, is this like the first half is sex in the city and the second half is, and just like that, it's all about Big's death? Yes. Are you keeping up? Is that Chris North? Is that his name? Is he (laughs) going to play Enkidu then? (laughs) I would love that. I didn't think about that. Keep going. So Gilgamesh, the big brute himbo that he is, he's not used to feeling grief and sad things. His tummy (laughs) feels all funny, doesn't it? And he's not very happy about the inevitability of death. You know, you've got to start people young on learning about death, haven't you? That's the thing. You end up like Gilgamesh, a weird man-child who didn't think he was going to die. Yeah, but sometimes, I'm guessing from you, you can start children on death a little too early. (laughs) (laughs) So he resolves to see Utnapishtim. His father, this guy, sort of god, who has everlasting life. He was once a man, but he's been given god status now. So he goes on this sort of long journey. He camps out in a mountain pass and wakes up to see he's completely surrounded by lions and just kills them all, crying and going like, oh, Enkidu would have loved this. (laughs) He eventually arrives at Mount Mashu. Bless you, sorry. (laughs) A mountain at the end of the earth that guards the rising and setting sun. Two dragon scorpion creatures, and I think they're sort of like slightly bickering married couple, aren't they? They guard the tunnel into the mountain, and despite their attempts to dissuade Gilgamesh, the monsters say, yeah, you can go through the tunnel, but, you know, on your head be it. I was really expecting, like, a big fight scene here, or, like, maybe, like, a we guard two doors and one of us only tells a lie or whatever. they're just a bickering couple. Yeah, and he explains what he's doing, and these two man scorpions are like... Rad trek, Brosif, right this way. <laughs> Eventually he comes out of the tunnel to find the Garden of the Gods. Biblical again. He runs into your friend of mine, Shamash, who's been helping him this whole time. And Shamash is just a bit like, what are you doing on here? Like, what's funny seeing you here? You know, like, you're on a bit of a fool's errand, but nice to see you in person. You know, it's a bit like that. Isn't it? There are some other gods who kind of eyeball Gilgamesh up and down, and they're like, you really shouldn't be here. This garden is not for you. And Gilgamesh, he's a little bit of an asshole. He goes... Don't you know who I am? I'm Gilgamesh, baby, who killed Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven, and just now, some lions! If I have any faith... It's in yourself? It's No, it's Mesopotamian polytheism. <laughs> this so, is a really, really weird way for you to get religion. Yeah. This is the weirdest possible way. <laughs> a born-again Mesopotamian. <laughs> One of the goddesses, Siduri, goes, Yeah, well, if you're Gilgamesh, then why do you look like such a depressed loser? So Gilgamesh explains the entire damn story up to this point. Classic. Classic epic device. Classic. He does this every time he runs into somebody new. She sits him down, and because one person in this book is, like, reasonable, she tries to do a bit of a therapy session with him, but he just ends up overly emotional. He's not processing his feelings very well, and he just ends up smashing things again. Who boy, this sure was written before the invention of stoic philosophy, wasn't it? (laughs) So he demands that she tell him how to cross this, you know, sort of mythical ocean nearby to find Utnapishtim. 
so he can grill his, you know, long absent dad about life and death. And maybe, maybe together, father and son can try to undo Enkidu's death. Um, and she's like, I, I don't know how to get there. You can't get there. Uh, whatever. Go, go see the ferryman and stop busting <laughs> up my garden. Another bit of a Greek thing. Yeah, the the ferryman of the dead and stuff. Yeah. So he goes to see Urshanbi, the ferryman. So Gilgamesh, he's there. He's on this weird coast of the cosmos. He, he runs into Urshanbi, and we have a, quite a similar encounter to that with Siduri. You know, it's always the same little dialogue. You look like crap. And he's like, well, I'm great. I'm in mourning. That's why I just look a bit rough at the moment. I've gone to seed a bit. I'm going to explain my whole story again yeah, this, up until this yeah, point. Yeah, bull of heaven, blah, blah, blah. And he and Urshanbi get on the boat, cross the sea. Eventually, they land at Dilmun, the place of the sun's transit, where the immortal Utnapishtim lives. So, another Odyssey bit. Well, the people know that because you cut all the bit where he goes to the underworld. Are you going to... Yes. Continually... What do I have to do to make it up I to don't, you? I don't... <laughs> I gave you your Tiresias mini-sode. It's not enough. Not nearly enough. I don't know if there's anything that can be done. Uh, yeah, he runs into Utnapishtim... Same conversation. You look bad. Well, actually, I'm great. I'm just going through some stuff. <laughs> um, I'm also worried about dying. Why don't you help a fellow out? Utnapishtim's like, well, all things must pass. Death's just a bit like sleep anyway. And it's a great leveler, so don't worry about it. You know, all the kind of usual... <laughs> I'm glad that like all the explanations or like the homilies for getting over death have not changed. <laughs> These are cliches and platitudes even back. Exactly. exactly. Whatever your BC... Gilgamesh, he's not having any of it. And he's like, I demand to know the secret of your immortality, Utnapishtim. He's like, okay, then I'll reveal to you a mystery. I will tell you the secret of the gods. <gasps> and if you guys are ready, if you're wondering where the Noah's Ark shit is, gird your loins, friend, because it's here. That's a biblical term. Well, Gilgamesh's dad says... Back in the day, quote, the world teemed, the people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull, and the great god was aroused by the clamor. So I was thinking, much like Beowulf, people are noisy as mm-hmm, It's yeah. awakened something that ain't great. So the gods all met up and decided, we've had it with humanity, we're going to flood everything. And it's almost identical to the Noah's Ark story. Here we get the god Ea, who told Utnapishtim... Which is in his ear. Yeah, he's like, there's a flood coming, you need to tear down your house and build a boat and take aboard, quote, the seed of all living creatures. So, get it on ice. Endless sperm, yeah. Yeah, the rest follows almost exactly like the Noah's Ark story. The only big difference is that this lasts six days and nights instead of 40. Can we have the flood? Because that's such a great bit. With the first light of dawn, a black cloud came from the horizon. It thundered within where Adad, Lord of the Storm, was riding. In front over hill and plain, Shullet and Hanish, heralds of the storm, led on. Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nurgle pulled out the dams of the nether waters. Nunurta, the warlord, threw down the dikes. And the seven judges of hell, the Anunnaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with their livid flame. A stupor of despair went up to heaven when the god of the storm turned daylight to darkness, when he smashed the land like a cup. Very good. When the flood is over, the main god who sort of was in charge of this flood, he sees the boat and he gets annoyed that a human family escaped. It turns into a bit of a row with the other gods, but they actually resolve it pretty quickly by going, aha, but what if, what if we turn Utnapishtim into a god and then a human wouldn't have actually survived? Eh? Eh? And that's what they do. 
Utna pushed him into story and he's like, like, as you see, it was a sort of a one-time thing. Technicality. Sorry. Still, I understand you're not happy. I understand it. You're not happy. You want to live forever. Uh, so, how, how about this? How about We'll see if you can live forever. All you have to do is stay awake for six days and seven nights straight. Do we have a deal? You know, and um, Gilgamesh is like, yeah, I'll give it a try. So he tries to stay up. Of course, he immediately falls asleep. And here's how you prove that you fell asleep. This is such a silly bit. Utnapishtim's wife, she's there too. She puts a loaf of bread next to Gilgamesh's head for every day he sleeps. Can't you just say, we saw you asleep? Yeah, or just couldn't Gilgamesh just notice that he woke up? Yeah. Like I do every day. <laughs> yeah, but you wake up screaming. Yeah, exactly, yeah. When Gilgamesh finally wakes up, he sees all the sleep breads. And he's like, it's a fair cop. Utnapishtim's like, come on. You can't even conquer sleep when you want to conquer death. Why are you doing I don't know. I Jewish just feel like that's boys. what the Pishtim's like. Also, they get to Urshamnabi, whatever his name is, the ferryman over. He's like, why did you, why did you bring Gilgamesh here? You know, what are you doing? Here's a punishment. You need to wash Gilgamesh. I give him nice new clothes so he can return to Uruk in style. So it's sort of... Is that a punishment? I was going to say, the ferryman's punishment is he, he has to bathe somebody? And go on a little shopping spree with Gotta him? Gotta bathe somebody. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's just the message. So, that, that happens. Just before leaving, Utnapishtim and his wife tell Gilgamesh about a plant. You know, they're, they're kind of like no hard feelings. You get some, you get, you know, it is your bonus prize, you know, or whatever, or your commiseration prize. There's a special plant that grows underwater and will restore lost youth. They go, he goes out on the boat, binds stones to his feet, and he just kind of jumps in the sea and goes on wandering under the water. A bit like Beowulf. I like that was a good bit. He finds the plan and he vows to bring it back to Uruk to share with his people. So he has learned something to be a nice king, to make all the old men of Uruk young again. It's a shame he hasn't learned to be a creative king because he intends to name this plant, quote, the old men are young again. Good yeah, work. Yeah, well. Does what it says on the tin. He and Urshanbi or whatever get back to the kind of mainland, en route back to Uruk. A serpent steals the plant. <laughs> this is so stupid! Oh, blow. So, that's sad. We know from the Bible that serpents can sometimes ruin it for everyone, <laughs> can't they? So, Oshambi's kind of out of a job now, isn't he? Because he got told off by Utnapishtim. So, who's ferrying the dead or no whatever? One. That's okay. it. It's f***ed up. But that's, that's the way it is, I'm afraid. It cuts. So, um, Urshambi goes back to Uruk with Gilgamesh. He's like, well, you'll know where to go. Come and stay with me. I've got a sofa. <laughs> Our narrator tells us that Gilgamesh returned and told the people of Uruk of all the various mysteries he'd seen and the kind of, you know, crazy things that he'd learnt. And he engraves the stories... Well, we kind of go to the past tense now. He engraved the stories of his travels on a stone, and that's how we know them. And it concludes with saying, I went to Mount Mashu and all I got was this lousy unemployed ferryman. One day, Gilgamesh dies. <gasps> and this is how we find out that he apparently had a wife, a son, and a concubine the whole time! So everyone leaves a lot of offerings, and he's decreed to be the best king who ever was. The end. <laughs> Do you want some casting then? I sure do. I just thought of a casting while we were doing this. Okay, so tell me. I was just thinking, I know you don't like these, but I was thinking it would be a good sort of Miyazaki cartoon. Because it's a bit like all the kind of cedar wood stuff and the mm. spirit is like Princess Mononoke. Oh, it really would. Like, I, I toyed with that one. Well, I've gone for a casting that is incredibly stupid and you're not going to like it. Okay, 
So this is a lot of tough blokes muscling and smarming their way through danger. This is a manic Guy Ritchie film. He did Aladdin poorly, I will admit, and he could do another fantasy piece very easily. Everyone has a Cockney accent for no reason. Jason Statham is Gilgamesh, Tom Hardy is Enkidu, and Ray Winston is Humbaba. The you come in my Caesar voice. <laughs> like that. As Tom Hardy talk, he does that kind of like, <laughs> I can't do Tom Hardy. This would be absolutely fucking insufferable, and I would go broke paying to see this. I weirdly love Jason Statham. He looks like a big toe. I see your Tom Hardy and I raise you Oliver Hardy. Stan Laurel as Gilgamesh. Oliver Hardy as Enkidu. They're in bed together. <laughs> that would work too. Oh, Ollie! <laughs> Ollie, my bed's not made of very good wood. We need some better wood. The bed would fall apart and, you know. <laughs> Can we do bad Goodreads <laughs> now? Are we done? Are yeah, you done? This is gold. Keep this. <laughs> what an embarrassment of riches. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. <laughs> I guess I am not a medievals person, <laughs> with the exception of an appreciation for the historical context. <laughs> One star. <laughs> the historical context of this not being medieval. I dislike the book, The Epic of Gilgamesh, because I found it too predictable. One star. <laughs> For the first book ever, this was pretty bad. One star. <laughs> well, you think we, humankind would be onto a winner straight away? I know. It takes time to write good books. <laughs> Finally, some analysis, please. Oh, yes. Epics. We've done a few now. It's very similar to other epics we've covered, isn't it? Voyage narrative, extreme feats, you know, like going into the underworld, going under the sea, going beyond the known world. There's that kind of idea of private esoteric knowledge that you get even if you don't get anything else. There's the inevitable homecoming. They all have that slightly sadder and a wiser man type thing, don't they? It's clear that, th that these societies had quite similar cultural preoccupations, possibly because of similar material conditions or similar social structures, although there are obviously really big differences between medieval England, ancient Greece, and ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah. But clearly there are like structural parallels between these narratives, so I think that's something worth bearing in mind. And I was just thinking about that guy, that James Campbell, yeah. and that hero's journey Your favourite guy of all time. Well, just, I, I don't really mind, I like formalists and structuralist mm -hmm. criticism. It, I mean, it has its place, doesn't it? But this whole, like, all of the best stories ever written are just this hero's journey. Mm -hmm. That's just bollocks. And he was just making that up. I think people should just know that. The only good thing about the hero's journey, and I don't even like Star Wars, but the only good thing about it is as a creative tool, because mm -hmm. you could just copy that and it will be a blockbuster. It's more just a recipe for blockbusters yeah. rather than an actual analytical tool. And he was some kind of fascist anyway, wasn't he? So screw that guy. Like, like in many ways, the Odyssey, Beowulf, and the Epic of Gilgamesh are very, very different, and yes. you can't just say they all follow the same rubric. Well, I, I quite like the hero's journey for that because we can just about shoehorn each of those in there, but they fit equally uncomfortable. It's yeah. like d different shapes in a round hole that you're... You yeah, exactly, yeah. You get this in the Bible as well, actually, that there are contradictions or tensions mm -hmm. that make the story more interesting in a way that you might not expect. Like, there's a lot of stuff, and you get this in the Bible too, where it appears that the deities have kind of counterintuitive desires or whatever, like... So they would the, create Humbaba, but then allow Humbaba to be destroyed or whatever. And, and then, like, But then kind of punish Gilgamesh for defeating Humbaba. Yeah, exactly, yeah, you yeah, can't win with these guys. You talked about that with the Odyssey as well, where it's like, why wouldn't you just magic him back home? Why are yeah. we doing... And, I mean, we're coming at this from a very modern no, of perspective... Course, yeah. 
that's why these stories are interesting yeah, yeah so we have ideas of fear i mean the number of times in this i screamed i don't know what's happening yeah. why would you do that how did we get here and that in itself is sort of intriguing yeah. to me the other thing i thought was the idea that's like the way that they deal with mortality mm. and mortality becoming a virtue because you get that in beowulf as well don't you that the fights with grendel just like the fight with humbaba they're like a preamble. You think, oh, it's all just about the action. You think yes. it's just there for the teenage boys. No, it's actually a preamble for thinking about mortality more yeah. broadly. And then we get this longer second half that's about yeah. melancholy. And Beowulf and Gilgamesh are very similar in that sense. It's about ideas of preservation versus destruction. And I was thinking with this that we got a little bit of that at the very beginning where we talk about the sort of juxtaposition of the gods where they have seemingly different characters in a moment's notice. Gilgamesh is given that by our narrator. So he's introduced to us as this great preserver of life and culture. Look at the walls. He preserved mm. the story. He knows of a time from before the flood. Let's go back in time now to when he was this little shit, this young king who just destroyed everything, where yeah. he was wrecking marriages and killing all the young men and fighting everything. And, and so there's that tension of how he has to learn. Like, kingship is not only learning to understand his own mortality, and to accept it, but also preserving things for those who yeah, come after Yeah, understanding him. others as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a kind of Bildungsroman narrative in that <laughs> respect, isn't it? Of Gilgamesh realising that you may be a two-thirds god, you may be the handsomest guy on earth, you still got a bit of learning to do. <laughs> eh? you know, you're not perfect yet, Sonny. Which, I wondered if there was a sort of political narrative here that... I mean, I don't know much about Mesopotamia, but it seems kind of radical to have one of its foundational narratives be about telling kings that, you know, you need to be melded out and power needs to be spoken mm. to by people like Enkidu. You know, I thought that was kind of interesting that it, it had this... It's definitely not a democratic narrative, but it is a kind of anti-monarchy narrative in some respects. Well, I was thinking that in terms of when we looked at Oedipus and why some of these were written as a bit of catharsis for the mm. working class people to sort of see something bad happening to their superiors and that's that's maybe a way of like emotional control to keep them from actually revolting as you can get this, these bad feelings out and it's, I wonder if there's a little bit of that there of like you know even even kings are fallible and somebody can say it to you and you'll have to listen yeah. and, you know it, well, it all, it's a bit like a mirror for princes as well isn't it yes. like it might I don't even know if the common people read this stuff but if there are any experts out there in this area, please write in and let us know because we we are certainly not experts. We don't Ooh. really know anything about this. Um, Daniel knows a lot more than I do, so I, I, think I just so. well a lot more than I do. Okay. Anyway, yeah, is it a kind of ecological narrative? I suppose we've already kind of covered that in our discussion, but yeah, the floods, the deforestation, yeah. the idea of the building of the city and the grandeur of the city, and even the walls around the forest. There is a little bit of a. I mean, there's there's obviously in the beginning with Enkidu a huge nature versus civilization thing. I suppose you could say that the Humbaba, that's a kind of ambiguity with the whole Humbaba mm. cedar forest thing and the idea of it having gates and stuff is it's like, it's, I don't want to get all kind of like, well, get Georg Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, <laughs> says that nature is a social category. And it's almost like that putting of the gate up outside a forest. We define nature with this human created yeah. thing, you know. So Gilgamesh was there before Lukács. But I suppose as well the whole ending, even the gods, all powerful, they can't help him overcome elements of nature. They can't mm. reverse death. You know, they say, okay, we have this plant that can halt aging or yeah. whatever. And even then, a snake steals. And it <laughs> yeah, goes, yeah, you know, yeah. nature does seem to be fighting back to some extent. Yeah. What about gender then? What is there to say? <laughs> what about gender? Yeah, I mean, there's well, there's so few women. Knowing as a sexual sex with a woman, but also, you know, 
as in to, to yeah. biblically know someone, but how that becomes a kind of knowing in a broader sense. They thought that was kind of interesting. How would that work? Because obviously, like, even educated fleas do it, you know? It's not like um, it's not like only humans have sex. I mean, we've because you and I have talked about this before, and we've talked about it quite a lot in our classes, that we see in a lot of colonialist narratives or things that sort of are about civilization versus nature, that women are used as a tool of, you know, sort of colonizing and civilizing forces because they're the ones who, you know, can tame the wild man, mm -hmm. take his, you know, baser urges, take the, the will to fight out of him through sex. So we see that. And also the idea of offspring. And well, if if we have offspring, now you're, you're going to want to settle down and build schools mm -hmm. and churches. And yeah, not down the cedars then bring in some ladies. So it's yeah. like, it, it is this idea of, you know, like, oh, we send the men out west to do the, the, the sort of rough stuff with the, you know, settling down. But at some point, you got to bring the women in. A woman's touch. You, yeah, you can't let it. You can't let it go too long just with men because they'll tear each other apart. You know. Yeah. Right. Well, let's move on to some advice then. So we've said before on this show that you should, especially with an older text that you're not really familiar with the time period or whatever, you should always use a good critical edition and read the footnotes because that's going to clue you into a lot of context or jokes or things that you know we we no longer understand. I'm going to add here that it's also really worth reading the introduction because that provides a lot of fascinating context. It's a, it's a little bit like Daniel doing, you know, the background at the beginning. And if you don't want to be sort of spoiled on the plot, definitely go back and read the introduction after you finish the main text. Because sometimes I read something and I'm like, what was that? I didn't understand a word of that. And then I go back and I read the introduction and, you know, some scholar is able to tell me like, what the hell I just read, and it makes me appreciate it a lot more. I had advice. Yay! Kind of strange advice, but it's more like just, it's not really advice, it's more just something to think about. There is this recurring debate in lots of areas of cultural history and beyond that, and it's this idea of like, you know, actual descent versus just isomorphism, just things that look alike, just in parallel with each other. So what you're talking about, is Noah's Ark descendant from this? Yeah. Or, well, exactly. are, yeah. or are these two things that just kind of sprung up because of the, the sort of metaphorical yeah. potential? Some, of... Sometimes two things appear alike because they're directly related. Sometimes this similarity is just a kind of, not a coincidence maybe, but it's kind of an unrelated, uh, well, I suppose it is a literal coincidence in the very literal sense. They could have emerged from similar factors, whatever those could be, like similar environmental, social, cultural conditions. But I think the important thing is that usually... It's kind of like both, usually, yeah. that they're kind of, these things may have some actual direct connection, but then also there are just like parallelisms yeah. that are kind of spontaneous. So now our clue to the next episode. I thought this was a really fun epic, but I just keep coming back to the Odyssey again. I think I would like another story that is, much like the Odyssey, technically a sequel, but arguably way more famous than the original text. And I want the sequel to be about another dude traveling a long way on the water. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe. That really does help, you know, as we as we try to keep this show going. Please sign up to our Patreon if you're able. We would really appreciate it. And we do have lots of other goodies there for you guys. Um, it's, you know, podcast related and sort of uh, adjacent stuff. And from Daniel and myself, we will catch you on the flip side. Not, not literally catch because Daniel's got a bad back, but, you know. Blessings of Mbilulu. What's his name? <laughs> I can't remember. Upon you. Sh Shamash, Nurgle, Aya, Enlil. Um, who's that other one that we were talking about? Ninkazi. Probably my fave <laughs> after Mbilulu. 
So bless just all the all the, all those good guys. Wishing you a merry old. Uh, what's the Mesopotamian Christmas? <laughs> Whatever Mesopotamian Christmas is, wishing you a good one. Hey. Oh God, I've never been so worried about you. This podcast is like a prison, and you're like a dude in prison who's found Jesus after all these yeah. years. But oh. it's a canal inspecting Jesus. <laughs> oh no, I've broken you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.